to uh, hi there, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing. We'd obviously be very grateful if you could go to iTunes and leave us a five star review. Um, obviously, there are other reviews you, you can give us, um, but uh, and the stars are up, up, optional, optional to you. Um, but it's quite important with certain metrics uh, how how this is 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 delivered and uh, how it's recognised as well. So if you have any topics that you'd like us to discuss or comment suggestions for the show, you can tweet me at Don Barfield or email me on uh, dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk. So today uh, we have uh, Dr. Rezan Jepson, who is a lecturer in internal medicine here at the RVC, um, and we're going to talk about uh, all things to do with uh, blood pressure. So thank you very much, uh, Rosanne, for, for joining. Thanks, Dom. It's great to be here. She, she's forced to say that. Um, so, uh, um, so Rosanne, I, I suppose, like f- fundamentally, let, let, let's start with uh, um, like how I, I suppose that I, I think looking at an emergency um, kind of kind of way, that blood pressure is one of those sort of fundamental things that that we should all measure really in in, in general. Let, let's be honest here. So, heart rate, temperature, respiratory rate, probably blood pressure should be up there as something yeah, we should I, do. I would agree. I would say that more and more today we think about blood pressure as being part of our baseline clinical assessment. And you're right, that's true for the emergency patients walking through the door but perhaps from my perspective it's dealing with the chronic medicine type patients the older more geriatric patients that we see but you're right when we measure blood pressure I guess um, where the the sort of two extremes that we're interested in those patients where we're worried about hypotension um, and all the complications that that can come with Um, and I guess my particular area of interest has been those patients that actually have high blood pressure and have systemic hypertension and all the secondary consequences that that can bring absolutely so so do you have a a set protocol i know you're involved with uh, um the geriatric cat clinic in 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 camden that that we have so do you have a a general standardized approach to measuring blood pressure pressure as in equipment to use the room environment yeah definitely and that and that is really important because i guess fundamentally um we have to be able to take reliable and repeatable measurements of blood pressure in order to be able to interpret them at all and that's where the environment that you're taking the blood pressure in so making sure that it's quiet the last thing you want is really noisy barking dogs um, in the same room when you're trying to take the blood pressure of a cat for example and so you know I think we'll normally have the owners present if this is on an outpatient basis Um, we very much encourage the client to be interacting with the cat or the dog whilst we're doing that because that tends to be when they're most relaxed and we're more likely to get a reliable um, reading in terms of the machines that we use for actually measuring blood pressure then um, it's interesting because currently in veterinary medicine there are no blood pressure machines that have been 100% validated for use Um, and therefore often the machine that you're most familiar with becomes the best machine to use. A lot of the studies out there certainly in conscious patients will use the Doppler and certainly I think that's what we regularly use both in the QMH and in our geriatric cat clinics Um, but there is also also uh, the oscillometric machines and then more recently the high definition oscillometric machines that have been produced as well and I think uh, overall if we look at the literature that's available there are concerns that the old school oscillometric machines can slightly underestimate blood pressure. Cuff size is also really important, so we will regularly measure just using your average um, uh, tape measure that you would have in your sewing kit, so a flexible tape measure to measure the um, circumference of the limb of cats and dogs, and we need to aim for the cuff to be somewhere between 30 to 40% of the limb circumference. 
Um, and then the other thing that's really important is is making sure that the measurements that you get are repeatable for that individual patient. So you'll hear people talking about perhaps discarding the first reading so that you've got a sort of ballpark area of where um, their blood pressure is going to be, but then taking a series of somewhere between three to five readings um, and averaging those. And I guess a lot of people will say that ideally those readings should be within sort of 10 to 20 millimetres of mercury. And so if you've got a patient where your blood pressure readings seem to be varying really dramatically, you're probably better off just gradually keeping going, just keep repeating those readings until you can get three to five relatively consistent readings and then averaging them. So that's going to give you a a sort of um, faith in what you've done that you've actually got reliable readings. Uh, It is important, though, I think, to um, document the sort of clinical... um, presentation of the patient in terms of how stressed and anxious they are when you're recording those readings and that feeds in I guess to how we then would go on to classify um, a hypertension and making sure that we're not dealing with a patient that has white coat hypertension. Yeah so that, that's definitely been uh, re- re- reported hasn't it and just to take back just a little bit um, so there's a couple of questions as in, in measuring blood pressure itself so, so the first you mentioned that obviously the cuff being appropriate size yeah. now on, I think on some of our cuffs or probably most of them there's a little arrow that says where the artery should be so, so do, you, do you always line that up do you think that's uh, um, in, in for where the where the artery is um, and also do, do you ever put like tape around it because sometimes when you black the cuff it that the it yeah. sort of pops off the, the patient yeah so so i will put a little bit of tape on if um the cuffs are popping normally that means the velcro is going so it's probably time to start thinking about um getting a new cuff um the cuffs vary so actually the cuffs we use um uh, in our cat clinics are don't have those little arrows and i just tap them tape them around at that point um if they do have um an arrow then i will try and line them up and i think that's more important for the oscillometric machines um because um essentially how those machines work is they need to be able to sense the oscillations in the air within the cuff and so that's much much more important that that arrow is in the right place if you're using one of the oscillometric um, devices I think a little less important when it's the Doppler machine where we're obviously listening to the sound of blood flow lower down in the leg and I think we're looking just for general um, artery occlusion um, for that for that device. No, no. In, in anaesthesia, obviously the patients are are uh, are, are asleep, um, but if they're going to use a Doppler or a sort of met- or if they're going to use sorry a Doppler, then they, they tend to tape on the uh, the probe to the yeah. to the right sort of place. So, so you, can you get measurable differences between um, taping that that probe in place? And obviously, it's hard to do in a conscious animal. I, I, <laughs> cats don't don't tape don't to take, having no, thing being taped onto them we try to avoid a elastoblast where possible i guess um so we would not um tape um the probe on if we were using a doppler in a in a conscious patient and i wouldn't clip either so i would literally just use the swab to clean the back of the um leg and then lots of contact gel um and but in terms of anesthetized patients if it um if it's helpful um, to tape on the probe, if you're using a Doppler, then I think that's absolutely fine. I don't have any issues with that. And I guess there are different places that you can use, obviously, to measure blood pressure as well. And whilst I'm talking about the cat, we most often use a front leg 
left or right makes no difference. Um, some people, um, particularly with the high definition oscillometric machine, will use the tail, um, and we can certainly do that in, in anaesthetized patients as, as well. Um, that has some implications if you're um, measuring blood pressure in a conscious patient because ideally um, we would have the um, we'd be having the cuff at the level of the heart to get the most accurate measurement so we have to remember that if the cuff is on the tail you can get readings that are a little bit elevated okay um, I suppose that's a good point because most of the validation of, of all these uh, all these different techniques are, are normally done in anaesthetized patients really aren't they and so so they're um, a very different scenario than, than the majority of times that we're actually measuring blood pressure yeah so, so absolutely, an, absolutely. another another complicating uh, complicating factor yeah. um, and in your mind with the uh, with a Doppler uh, method of measuring blood pressure do you do you think that um, in theory, it should be the systolic, but is that is that what you you think it is? Is that what you tell yourself it, it is, or do you say, well, it's a bit higher than the mean? How, how do you? No, in conscious patients, you... we very much think about the Doppler measuring systolic blood pressure. Um, I guess that is one of the caveats that we have in veterinary medicine using the Doppler is that um, we really don't make any assessment of diastolic blood pressure. Um, I think if you're using the Doppler machine a lot, in some patients, you can think that you hear the trans transition in sound um, that people have described historically in the sort of older manuscripts, which is the point at which diastolic blood pressure could be recorded. But it's so difficult to pinpoint that that we never do it. Um, having said that, nobody actually knows whether there is any clinical significance of diastolic hypertension in veterinary patients. And it seems to be having less importance in human medicine these days as well. So uh, to my mind, actually, the clinical associations we have with high blood pressure relate to systolic hypertension and so for the conscious patient uh, I'm happy that I'm dealing with systolic blood pressure using the Doppler. In anaesthetized patients I think the situation is slightly different and people talk about the readings that they're getting better equating to mean and I guess in, in anaesthetized patients um, many of the studies that have been performed have the luxury of having arterial catheters in so that they are able to see that and to try and correlate better the difference that they're getting between their indoor direct technique with the Doppler versus a true arterial waveform of blood pressure. Absolutely, but but then I suppose we could almost uh, discuss uh, arterial measure of blood pressure and, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the difficulties with that, and it's not necessarily perfect. No, ab absolutely. Yeah, maintaining an arterial catheter in a patient is not an easy task sometimes and even getting that arterial catheter in can be challenging absolutely absolutely um yeah it did it, i mean as far as in i suppose our it is very rare that we would place one in the patient that hasn't been anaesthetized maybe yeah. if they're being mechanically ventilated uh, we, we would yeah. do it but it but yeah it's not it's not a common thing and obviously they have their their own issues of how we interpret their, their yeah, readings absolutely. as well. Um, so, okay. So, so if we we do, and and do you think in your uh, discussion with uh, um, with with vets in in general that. Uh, Doppler is probably the the most commonly used in in practice. I think so. I, I think um, 
Initially, it seems as though it's a, perhaps a slightly more difficult technique compared to the oscillometrics where you're literally pressing a button. But ultimately, I think those those vets that sort of take blood pressure on board probably more often than not are using a Doppler. Um, and it's also very useful to have in the practice when you are monitoring anaesthetics and things like that as well. So I think it's it's a useful piece of equipment to get. Yeah, absolutely. Apart from the, the, the pro being the most expensive uh, part of that. But at least they're, they're replaceable, aren't they? They're replaceable. And if you look after them, put yeah. a bubble wrap around them. They do last for many, many years. <laughs> okay. So if you if you have a, a, a patient that comes in, so maybe say a uh, um, a dog first that that uh, you document. Well, when when do you document that it's hypertensive? So what what, what blood pressure do you think I need to? Yeah, and so I guess one of the difficulties that we have is defining normal blood pressure because you kind of need to do that first before you decide where hypertension is. And really, we've started to decide where hypertension is based on um, finding evidence of what we call target organ damage. So the blood pressures at which we're worried that critical organs are affected by having high blood pressure. So the eyes, the heart, the kidneys, the brain, the central nervous system. And so um, if we look at I guess what um, Iris would propose and also the ACVIME hypertension consensus statement um, then we really start getting concerned about both dogs and cats when they have systolic blood pressures over around 160 millimeters of mercury um, and we more often see target organ damage certainly relating to the eye in certainly cats um, when their blood pressures are over around 170 millimetres of mercury. But I think it's important that we define um, uh, the status of the patient because obviously if we take a young, fit, excitable boxer dog and we take our five readings of blood pressure and they happen to be 170 and this is a two-year-old otherwise completely healthy dog, the chances are that that dog has normal blood pressure. It's just incredibly excited about the fun and games of us trying to measure blood pressure. Um, but when we're dealing with an older patient, um, if we get readings over 160 millimetres of mercury consistently on at least two occasions or if we have evidence of target organ damage so ocular lesions relating to the hypertension on a single occasion then we will be worried that that patient is hypertensive and we will want to start thinking about antihypertensive therapy. And so to some extent, actually, the point at which I diagnose hypertension is actually more related to the point at which I feel that hypertens antihypertensive medication is indicated. So if I had um, retinal lesions and hyphema, for example, if, if that cat's blood pressure was 162... I would definitely be starting um, antihypertensive therapy. Um, however, more often than not, their blood pressures will be in the sort of 170 to 200 range when we're seeing those changes. And so would you do a, a funding exam of all the patients that you, you, you see? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, we would routinely do an indirect fundic exam on any cat with a blood pressure over 160. And I would say the same would really hold true for the dogs that we see, obviously. I don't see those through our geriatric 
bariatric cat clinics, but in the in the hospital and um, the QMH, then I think any patient where we we feel that we have a reliable reading over 160, I think it's good practice to do an indirect exam. And it's very it's very quick and easy and very well tolerated. Um, it can help to dilate the pupil with a bit of trichomide, but you get a really nice global view of the retina. I find it a whole lot easier than trying to use a direct ophthalmoscope. Um, so f- for people out there, I definitely encourage you to get a lens. Um, you can get them relatively inexpensively, and o- the only other piece of equipment you need is a pen torch. So quick, easy, and um, it, once you start looking, you start realising how often actually there are ocular changes present. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a much better way to uh, to, to see the whole. Absolutely, the whole, it's uh, it's it's much easier actually. I can say that as a medic. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, so once people got a patient that is uh, uh, hypertensive and, and, a, and a, at a rate that you at, at a sorry at a, a level that you think you'd actually want to start antihypertensives, are there other tests you want to do before starting on hypertensives, or actually do you start treating regardless of any other investigations that you might do? I think that's going to depend on the, on the patient presenting to us, obviously, and many other client-related factors. But you're right; we need to then have a think to ourselves about, well, you know, why is this patient hypertensive? And it could be that that patient has presented for other clinical signs, um, suggesting that there may be an underlying condition, um, and therefore the hypertension may well be secondary. Um, or alternatively, it may be that you've monitored blood pressure, for example, in the older geriatric cat that's just come in for um, a routine health check, and that may be the only thing that you've found. But having identified hypertension, I think we have a, a duty to try and d- decide whether there is an underlying condition. And so I guess in the cat, we'd really be thinking about chronic kidney disease as the most common um, cause of, of hypertension. Hypothyroidism, we would think about as well. Um, a less common Commonly, conditions like hyperaldosteronism. Um, in the dog, we'd have to add into that list hyperadrenocorticism. Um, there's been very little information really combining diabetes and hypertension in the dog and the cat. Obviously, that's something we think about a lot in human medicine, um, but less so in our veterinary patients for sure. And we shouldn't forget that there are some drugs that can actually cause hypertension as well. So it's always worth reviewing the medical history. So um, things like phenylpropanolamine that we use for incontinence, for example, um, has been associated with hypertension. It's uncommon um, in uh, therapeutic dosage, um, but it but it has been reported. Okay, um, and so once once you once you've done that, your decision to start an antihypertensive, I, I can only really think of uh, think of think of one that that we we, we tend to use, or or there or there or do you or do you. Well, how many are there? (laughs) Well, I guess there are a a fair few, but you're right. Um, Our go-to drug, certainly for the cat, is going to be the um, L-type calcium channel blocker, amlodipine bezylate. Um, It's the licensed drug for treating hypertension in cats, and and it's incredibly effective in cats, much more so, actually, interestingly, than it is in humans. Um, In the dog, I would say our first-line treatment does vary a little bit depending on the underlying etiology of the hypertension. So um, if I have a dog that has um, evidence of chronic kidney disease and is very proteinuric, I may choose to start an ACE inhibitor first. But the thing I would say about dogs is that they're much 
much closer to hypertension in terms of um, often requiring multimodal therapy. So um, the majority of dogs, even if I start an ACE inhibitor first, they'll probably end up on the combination with amlodipine because we just don't find that we get sufficient blood pressure reduction with an ACE inhibitor alone. Cats, on the other hand, um, it would be fairly normal for us to see somewhere between a 30 to 50 millimeter of mercury blood pressure reduction, having started just amlodipine therapy alone. So we, we very, very rarely need to use more than amlodipine in cats. I've never heard before that it's more effective in uh, cats than people. Do, 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 do we know why? We don't know why. We don't know why. It's But it's very interesting. And humans are much closer to dogs in the sense that most people will require or often will require multiple therapies, sometimes one, two, three different agents on board to um, adequately control their blood pressure. I guess in terms of other potential drugs that we do use, um, then very rarely um, I've needed to use hydralazine. Um, just as a general arterial dilator um, and that, that can obviously be administered orally and as a systemic um, agent um, I think those are the, the drugs we mainly use there are, there's obviously the um, product the ARB Talmasartan that's also recently been um, licensed for treatment of proteinuria in cats um, and that is known to have some blood pressure reducing effect as well probably similar to um, mechanisms that you would anticipate from an ACE inhibitor being an angiotensin II receptor blocker. Um, I think we're waiting on some further data to come out about how effective that drug is compared to ACE inhibitors. So, um, See, am I right in understanding, Roseanne, that there's evidence to say that these drugs actually work to reduce your blood pressure, but has that, has that actually been translated into outcomes? Um, so not a huge amount has been done in dogs, but there has been work done in cats. Um, and actually, um, uh, the study that's looked at the survival of hypertensive cats actually showed that the, there was no significant difference in terms of survival, depending on how well controlled um, the cat's um, blood pressure was. Um, but actually, um, it was their magnitude of proteinuria that was important. Um, and so those, those were cats that were all managed in a standardised manner. Um, and we had the same target for blood pressure control, which I guess we've not spoken about, but we probably should. Mm. Um, so in that particular study, we were aiming to get blood pressure under 160 millimetres of mercury. So they were all reasonably well controlled cats. Um, but, it, but it is very interesting. Um, I think... The major difference that we see is obviously trying to reduce the risk of target organ damage. Um, and we see patients, sadly, that do present to us blind, particularly cats, which is why we advocate screening blood pressure in older cats that are at a particularly high risk of developing hypertension. So you mentioned before, like, the, what, what, what should we aim for? So yeah. something under 160 millimetres of mercury. So do you, do you start on a dose and remeasure in a week or two weeks or...? Yeah, so I guess I guess how frequently measure we measure blood pressure will depend. Um, having started antihypertensive therapy, will depend a little bit on the clinical status of the patient. So, if you admit a patient um, and you think that patient has severe ocular 
target organ damage, it has neurological signs that could be related to hypertension, then I think we'll be looking to hospitalise that patient for at least 24, 48 hours. And in that patient, we'd like to see um, not a sudden dramatic reduction in blood pressure, but a nice gradual reduction over that 48-hour period. And in actual fact, certainly for cats, amlodipine is, is, as I've said, very effective, and that's probably all that cat's going to need. For the stable patient, um, then typically reassessing their blood pressure, having started antihypertensive therapy after one to two weeks, will be completely fine, very appropriate duration. And thereafter, if you've hit your target of um, under 160 millimetres of mercury, then I'd go to monitoring them maybe in a month's time and then thereafter everything's still looking good, maybe two to three months. Um, If at that recheck points actually let's say we've got a cat that started with a blood pressure of 200 and you find you've brought it down to 180 but it's still not hit the target that you'd like, um, then we would look at increasing the dose at that point. So um, in cats, we typically start them on somewhere between 0.625 and 1.25 milligrams of amlodipine per cat um, per day. And so we, if we started on 0.625, we might increase up to 1.25 milligrams per cat per day. Um, and then we would then recheck them another sort of one to two weeks later. Um, it's interesting, though, because if we have a cat that doesn't respond to that dose, and my first question is normally how is the client getting on in actually administering the tablet in cats? Because we know it's so effective that the more likely scenario is that the client may have had some difficulties or the cat's been spitting the pills out. There are rare exceptions to this where actually we need to go even higher or we need to think about a second agent, but that's less than probably 5% of the cats with hypertension that we treat. Uh, I, suppose, yeah. I suppose that's a very good <clears throat> good point, and, and I imagine that uh, the compounding pharmacists that might be able to help to create a uh, uh, an amlodipine paste or something of that um, calibre that might you know facilitate better administration or compliance yeah or, that that might be good so we've got um obviously the licensed ammo dip that's available um and um that's been a real bonus to us because it comes in small tablet sizes now whereas previously we used to use the human formulations which meant breaking what was a very tiny tablet into essentially powdery crumbs and then trying to average out the doses there has been a study that's looked at the the administration of transdermal amlodipine and unfortunately certainly in the formulation that they used in that study it did not adequately reduce blood pressure so um, I wouldn't go advocating a transdermal formulation right now until maybe in the future we'll have a product that is sort of we know is absorbed and we have the pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic data that tells us that that's the right route to take um so for now unfortunately it's oral preparations only for amlodipine fair fair enough enough. um are there there any other hypertensives that are coming on to the to the to the market do you do you know just just out of out of interest no not that i'm aware of at the moment I suppose, I suppose there's no particular need for for anything more. So amlodipine seems to be the the effective drug that that uh, 
works no, predominantly in the species absolutely. we deal with. I think it'll be interesting, you know, I think there's interest from sort of drug companies in general about combination therapies. There's been a lot of um, interest in recent years about the role of managing proteinuria alongside blood pressure. And so, um, you know, I think in the future there may be studies that suggest that we need to, um, uh, to manage not only hypertension but also the proteinuria in patients as well. But, um, yeah, I think that's something that we're all still working on. Do you, do you think, um, maybe I don't know if people are listening to this, but, but uh, it's sort of almost like preaching to convert it. A lot of people now have got their handle on geriatric cats and treating them better. Or, or do, you, do you still come across people that, uh, you know, have never thought about measuring blood pressure in, in cats? Or... Do you know, I think... I think I think the awareness in general is is good. Um, I think whether things actually happen is probably another matter, and I think that relates to the fact that we all have very busy working schedules. Um, I think something that I always really encourage is getting you nurses involved with actually the blood pressure measurements. They've got a little bit more time; they're not being pressed into the next consultation, um, and so I think that's definitely the way forward in practice. I think there's still scope for improvement, unfortunately, in terms of um, people regularly thinking about measuring blood pressure in these in these patients. Well, I think it's definitely an idea because these these almost they're, they're like practice schemes that you have a geriatric uh, yep. you know a clinic and absolutely and walk into walk yep. into that and yep. uh, have a blood pressure and find out how how other yep. things are going, monitoring weight, etc., etc. Exactly. It's, I guess much the same as there would be puppy associated yeah. clinics. It's the same sort of ethos. Um, and it, and I think it's it's really useful, and a lot of clients are you know uh, very interested to be able to optimise the the care for their older older pets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I remember the, one of the last times I was uh, talking to to some some vets. I did ask about who has uh, Doppler. Most people put yeah. their hands up. So I think it is something absolutely. that that people definitely have. And, yeah. and again, like it's whether they use it all the time for for for, for these these types. Yeah, of cases. it's becoming confident enough with using it that you're quick enough that it becomes part of the routine um, and I think that's what it should be and um, I guess you know you can think about things like maybe people are paying slightly more for the general consultation but actually they're including blood pressure measurement as part of that um, evaluation and it would be much the same as going to see your own doctor it should be part of your clinical exam really. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, maybe before we uh, wrap up, have you have you ever um, asked people to uh, um, have you ever asked people to to measure blood pressure of their cats or dogs at home? Do you know, um, I have had a couple of people who have wanted to do that. Um, it's mainly been um, people who already have some veterinary training, so veterinary nurses. Um, it's a really good point because in humans, um, actually, uh, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring or monitoring blood pressure in the home environment um, is definitely used when trying to exclude white coat hypertension. Um I guess the, the the difficulty is the time period that we would take to actually train somebody to or train a client to measure blood pressure at home, which wouldn't be 
it wouldn't be impossible, but it, it would be a little bit time consuming or alternatively, you'd have to be able to arrange for maybe yourself or one of your nurses to go to the home environment to do that. Um, I think if we could do that, I think it would really help us in terms of, uh, you know, weeding out those cats and dogs that have got white coat hypertension and just become very anxious um, in the hospital environment. Um, they definitely happen. There's some really interesting data in cats looking at um, some cats that actually had um, uh, transducers placed for continuous blood pressure monitoring. And they took them on a simulated visit to a vet clinic. So they put them in a carry they sat them in a waiting room for 10 minutes they measured their blood pressure using an indirect device um, and they um, did a physical exam on these cats and some of these cats they were, they were all completely healthy young cats some of their blood pressures increased by over 80 millimeters of mercury just going into the consultation room and these were completely healthy cats um, so that they're not cats with kidney disease etc uh, their blood pressure was completely normal and this study knew it was normal because when they were at home in their what was a research environment their blood pressures were completely normal but the stress of the process of going to the vets is quite considerable for cats maybe maybe there's a study in there Roseanne about uh, looking at cortisol levels there's or... always a study <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should uh, look at cortisol levels of patients at home and then and then see what it's like when they when they come back in um I, I, absolutely I'm, patients are very different aren't they when they, they are come very in. different yeah and I that's just... what one of the things that makes blood pressure measure interpretation challenging for mm. sure i had, I had one uh, patient my, my first uh, uh hyperadrenal cortisone dog that would seizure when she came in to see me which was quite an extreme that's uh, an extreme reaction <laughs> extreme reaction um so we uh we, we dealt with her outside after a while but 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 it's a, yeah i think i think the stress yeah. of coming to it to a hospital is, is is one of those things so so we should definitely um you know get people to check out the the rso to the uh, international renal interest society website they have a lot of information about uh, blood pressure and and, uh, and you know the categories of yep, that. Absolutely, yeah, and and also the ACVM guidelines, and also there's um, a recently released um, article from ISFM, so International Cat Care, looking at um, a consensus of blood pressure measurement, obviously in cats rather than dogs, but again some really clear guidelines out there and practical guidelines as well. Um, and the IRIS um, website has a lot of information in terms of how to come to a diagnosis of hypertension when to instigate treatment and some great sort of flow diagrams for um, tailoring treatment too. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, I suppose we shouldn't plug uh, a, a, a lot of things, but but definitely, no, <laughs> not saying that. But uh, ACVM, you know, the, the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine is now public access. So, so, absolutely, so, these are you all know, freely available. It's an amazing yeah. resource to, to go to. You know, so there's no no reason why why people can't just log on not and become all. an expert and, and read all about it. You know, we don't have to worry about uh, subscribing to, to to that journal no, anymore, no, which no. is which is really amazing, and, and hopefully will will lead to uh, other publications doing the same thing, which would be which would be really good um so so just many thanks uh, again for your time uh, today roseanne and uh, thank you everyone for for listening um don't forget to tell your friends and it'd be great if you could take a couple of minutes to leave us a review on itunes um so we'll play some notes in some of the links that uh, roseanne and, and i were talking about in the show notes on the rvc pages so probably the best way to look for that is just type in ivc rvc and clinical podcast into your search engine um, and should be the top of the hit so until next time take care bye